What can Christian theology learn from the band Radiohead about the world's brokenness and its longing for redemption? Robert Saylor is Associate Dean at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, where he also serves as Research Professor of Lutheran Studies and Executive Director of the Center for Pastoral Excellence. In this episode, Sherry Osteen talks with Rob about his book, All Things Into Position, What Theology Can Learn from Radiohead. Listen as Rob explores what it might mean for Radiohead to soundtrack a theology of defiance against the forces that create death in our daily lives. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So thanks for talking with me today, Rob. Oh, it's really a pleasure to be here. One of the most fascinating things that struck me the second I started reading the book is that you choose to take a, a learning posture as you engage this band. So you're, in a way, I felt encouraged to think about art and culture generally, not from a, a posture of either co-opting them for theological purposes or of trying to kind of cram them into theological categories, but instead trying to approach them with great appreciation as a learner. So can you talk a little bit about that choice, um, whether that's something you do intuitively or something that you've come to yeah, I'd be happy to. I think in a lot of ways, it's me reacting against what I see as the sort of one-way monologue aspect of how theology tends to interact with culture. And I don't want to pin it all on Paul Tillich, but you know, when Tillich talks about correlation, what he tends to provide is a picture of, okay, culture or philosophy or literature or whatever, that asks the questions and theology provides the answers. And I just think that's a dead end, frankly, when it comes to how Christians interact with the deep meaning and the deep pathos of culture at any given time. So I think I did pretty intentionally say, look, I'm not interested in what theology has to teach Radiohead or how to Christianize or colonize Radiohead. I'm interested in the opposite flow. There's something about Radiohead that's clearly spoken pretty deeply into large segments of global culture. And I want theology to, yeah, I like your phrase. I want theology to take a learning posture to try to figure out what that might be and what that might mean for about the subject matter of theology. Seems like that lets theologians and Christians off the hook a little bit too for having to have all these answers. Right. And I mean, theology, in my view, was never supposed to be about that. I think of theology as much more akin to music appreciation or art appreciation than um, this kind of didactic, let's reduce all of the complex phenomena in the world into a math problem that somehow theology is supposed to solve. Um, I think that what theology does is it examines what women and men have thought about across centuries when they think about questions of God, truth, beauty, meaning. And when you have some sense of that, I think it operates really akin to like music appreciation yeah. or poetry appreciation. Yeah, which kind of leads you into a posture more of fascination and less of expertise. I think that's right. And you know, I've I've noticed this in life. I have a theory that the the true geniuses in a given area tend to be the most humble. And I think that that humility comes from the fact that their genius allows them to see the sheer size of what it is they've chosen to dedicate their life to. 
like Arvo Pert sees the sheer size of music and how can you not be humble in the face of that? Whereas I think arrogance comes from shrinking God or music or art down to the size of one's own categories. And then once you've done that shrinking, sure, you can delude yourself into thinking you've mastered it. All right. So let's talk Radiohead specifically, because we shouldn't assume that everyone is familiar with their music or who they are as a band. So give us like the Cliff Notes version. Who is the band and how did you come to listen to them? Yeah, so Radiohead is a rock band uh, originating from Oxford, England. Uh, They're one of the few rock bands that have been going for as long as they have, over 20 years, that's never had a lineup change. So we're talking about Radiohead, we're talking about a phenomenon, but we're also talking about pretty concrete people. And they start off largely sort of in the realm of Britpop, grunge, you know, in the 90s. So, you know, they're opening for Alanis Morissette. They're on uh, MTV compilation albums alongside like Cracker and Nirvana, that sort of thing. And then, and their first couple of albums are fairly straightforward. A real landmark then is OK Computer, their third album. And at that, when did that come out? Uh, that was in the late 90s. And what happens with OK Computer is that all of a sudden the band is big enough to follow its own musical direction. And at that point, it just starts taking incredible risks. OK Computer was largely a guitar-driven album, sort of prog rock. But their next album, Kid A, has very few guitars and is drawing much more on techno, electronics, that sort of thing. Um, And then every subsequent album represents a kind of further left turn in which they're daring their fans to follow them along. And one of the amazing things is that for the most part, their fans do, and they become one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Yeah, after becoming kind of weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was, and so you ask what my attraction was. Part of it, beyond just my love for the music, is what does it mean for a band to be itself so boldly, uh, you know, keeping itself weird, and headline some of the biggest stages in the world? So one of the phrases that you you used to describe them is that they've mastered the art of defiance. So can you talk a little bit about how defiance shows up in this? When I think about defiance, I think that the alternatives to defiance are despair on the one hand and cheap hope on the other. Um, and this is where I think the question of why, why theologians ought to be interested in them comes into play. Um, because on the one hand, you're not going to listen to Radiohead looking for feel-good lyrics or feel-good music or a sense that everything's going to be okay. Um, their music is much more doom-laden and pessimistic than that. But I think it's an, it's an equal mistake to only think that what they're doing is wallowing in self-pity or wallowing in how terrible the world is. The more I listen to them, both lyrically and then particularly in how the lyrics interact with the music. The phrase I use in the book is that they're searching for the beating heart in the midst of the machine, um, in the midst of all of this overwhelming crush of despair. They're always going to be looking for where is the pulse of resistance? And again, I think they do that somewhat lyrically, but I think where it really comes out is when pretty depressing lyrics interact with music that is both 
aggressive in the defiance, but then also beautiful in its own way. And that's another thing that I began to really notice as I was writing and thinking about them theologically is that beauty in dark times is its own kind of rebellion. And I think that that's, that's what I mean by defiance. And the more I think about it in relation to this book and theology, I think I would call it defiant beauty. I love that phrase. Um, there was one quote that was included by Tom York, who's the lead singer. Um, and he says, any great work of art is in itself a form of resistance against a sense of powerlessness. And I think that's really beautiful. I think that's right. And which really presses the question then for me, well, then what about the church? Because um, part of the backdrop to the whole book is a strong sense that I have that at a, in some pretty decisive ways, the church as a whole has lost confidence in its ability to produce great art or be a friend to great art. Um, I talk about this experiment in the book, but um, you know, I teach at a seminary and whenever I am talking to students about art or music or literature, I'll often say, okay, if you, if you start using Christian as an adjective, if you put Christian in front of a movie, so it's like, okay, this is a Christian movie or this is Christian rock, almost to a person, they all agree that using Christian as an adjective in front of art means that the art is going to be done less well. And that represents historically a major shift in the church's relationship to, to art Right, you and think about to, cathedrals that... Yeah, always... yeah. Michelangelo, you know, the Renaissance, all of... Yeah, so it's like, what happens? And I think part of what happens is um, the same sort of attenuation that turns religion into ethics, do this and not that, spills over into art to where art becomes Christian on the basis of its message. It puts artists themselves in an interesting predicament thinking of like a visual artist like Mako Fujimura, for whom he is a Christian, but he would prefer not to be referred to as a Christian artist um, because of some of these dynamics you're talking about. Yeah, Sufjan yeah. Stevens is another one. So, so one of the things that, that you tease out a little bit when you're talking about that kind of tension between faith and, and art is the way in which a band like Radiohead and Christian theology have resonance in the way that they can resist cheap binaries. So the gospel can be presented yeah. as a really cheap kind of hope that glosses over the complexity of human experience and reality and emotion. Um, or you can fall into this pit of despair where you're just kind of glorifying the suffering and you get lost in, I don't know if it's a rabbit trail of theodicy. Um, but can you talk a little bit about like the healthy level of tension that could be held. And I think that um, every preacher, everyone who does ministry of any kind, youth ministry, congregational leadership, is walking this tightrope between, on the one hand, Christianity, I think, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, does not have a reputation for dealing with reality and all its coldness and starkness and beauty, right? Um, I was, I was talking with a student last night and we were talking about films and the way that priests and pastors are often depicted in films. And it's like, okay, the pastor, the priest, 
if they're not depicted as somehow malicious, they're often depicted as kind of naive, right? And um, and the naive person needs to be, um, like a lot of Clint Eastwood movies are like this, the naive person needs to be educated by the hard-bitten, secular <laughs> hero with a heart of gold but lives in the real world and has a gun, right? <laughs> um, that's kind of the archetype. And so even when religion is regarded as benevolent, which, as we know, is not always, even when it's regarded as benevolent, it's often regarded as naive. And so every preacher, every pastor has to think, okay, how can the church speak deeply into reality as it is? But it, but on the other hand, I do think there's something about the gospel and beauty that is also meant to, to be countercultural. In other words, it's not just talking about culture well and engaging it correctly. It's also a matter of saying the world doesn't know itself fully. Part of the Christian message is that the gospel also comprehends the world at a deeper level than the world comprehends itself. One of, one of my main influences that I talk about in the book there is Bonhoeffer. Um, you know, early Bonhoeffer in like discipleship and life together, when he talks about the world, it's often in the sense of, okay, the church needs to set itself apart from the world. Discipleship is following Jesus out of the world. But one of the things that I like about him so much is he continued in the struggle against the Nazis and so on. He kept thinking about that Christologically. And I think what we see in ethics and letters and papers from prison is him saying, well, look, if discipleship is following Jesus, where is Jesus going? Where does God in Christ go? And the answer, of course, is not only deep into the world, but deeper into the world than the world is in itself. And so what I think Bonhoeffer was working out towards the end of his life before he was killed was, what does it mean for Christians to be more secular than the world is? What does it mean for Christians to love them to love the world more than the world loves itself? And so I, so I think that's the other side of the equation. Christians need to deal with reality in all its fullness and brokenness, but they also need to realize that, I think it's an essential part of the gospel, that the story of God becoming Christ in the world is a story of God knowing the world more deeply than the world knows itself. It's an interesting way to think about also revelation, like the revelation exactly. that happens through the incarnation. Yeah, well, or um, my I teach a lot of early church history, and uh, I always have very smart students whenever we get to the doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus. They're like, isn't that isn't that docetic? Isn't that turning Jesus into a superhuman um, and therefore anti-incarnational? And the answer that the early church gives, which I think is absolutely beautiful, is, well, no, actually, what sin does is it makes us less human. It dehumanizes us. Sin is not constitutive of human nature. Sin is uh, sin is that which reduces and damages human nature. And if you follow that logic through, what the doctrine of the sinlessness of Jesus is saying is that Jesus is more human than we are. All right, so we have to shift lanes. Sure. Because it would be a shame to not talk about the market. So what's going on? Yeah. Radiohead is critiquing the machine and yet making billions of dollars by participating in this uh, commercialization. Talk about that. I think the reason that interested me, not just theologically, but I'll say ecclesiologically, is 
in the same way that I grew up in punk culture that said, oh, anything that's popular is uncool. It's a sellout. I think even in a lot of the church circles I travel in, you know, mainline Protestantism and so on, um, there's this sense of, well, if a church is really big and commands a lot of cultural and financial capital, that must mean that it's theologically vacuous or it's sold out or so on. And I want to press the question and say, look, small doesn't, small and non-powerful doesn't automatically mean good. I mean, I'm a big theology of the cross guy, so I think absolutely there are times where the church needs to embrace its weakness, its marginalization, and so on, especially if that's done for the sake of the gospel. And when the church finds itself with a a real platform, a situation where it commands a lot of capital, then the question becomes, well, how do we use it well? Think about the global church and the dramatic rise of particularly charismatic Christianity and um, you know, the two-thirds world and so on. These are going to be questions that we face in North America. I, I really worry about us starting to valorize loss of cult- cultural capital in the name of being prophetic. Hmm if we're not also paying attention to the ways in which Christians around the world are not just grappling with questions of marginalization and persecution, many of them are also grappling with questions of power. And we all know from church history, the church has a long track record of a very ambiguous relationship (laughs) to power and what happens when, when we come into power. And part of what I think Radiohead can teach theology is going all in when we do find ourselves with power and we do find ourselves with an audience being pretty intentional about what we're going to do with it. Another part of this question of kind of being present in the market that I think Christians and churches, theologians to an extent, need to deal with is the dynamics that are created and those who follow. And so you've talked a little bit about your own hesitation in following Radiohead because they were popular. But there's an interesting tribe that forms around those who are followers. So I'd be interested in thinking about that dynamic both in fans of music, but then also as we think about followers of Jesus and what that means. I I really appreciate the question. I mean, in some ways, I think Radiohead fandom is a more accurate description of what lived religion, including lived Christianity, is actually like than a lot of the rhetoric that we use about the church. Um, And here's what I mean by that. Like so often we talk about the church as sort of a community, or a, or a polis in the sense of, oh, we're all gathered together. We all are accountable to each other the way community members are. And I don't think that actually describes the lived Christianity of at least many U.S. and European Christians. I think it's more akin to a kind of loosely differentiated network whereby people have really intense experiences of, of God, of prayer, of scripture, some of which encompasses things like going to church, being a part of communities, but a lot of which is done in more loosely affiliated networks, whether that's online, peer groups that are outside of what the church sponsors. Radiohead fandom, you know, there are gatherings in the sense that like when Radiohead plays a concert, it's a big deal. Or if they do a simultaneous podcast, you might feel a sense of togetherness or an album drops and everybody's listening to it at the same time. There are those moments of synchronicity and togetherness, but there's also a sense of everyone's having a pretty intensely personal experience with this band. 
the music that soundtracks our lives. And when you think about Radiohead fandom as a communal phenomenon, it's very different than the sort of let's all drop what we're doing at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and gather in the same place. I think about that when people talk about online Eucharist, for instance. Um, and I'm not necessarily in favor of online Eucharist, but what I am saying is a lot of the rhetoric that people use to critique it. Um, oh, no, there's, it, it has to be face to face. Everyone has to be gathered together. That's what this thing is. It's, it's fine to have that opinion as long as you realize that you're not actually, I think, describing the experience of the intensity of church community as it's lived out by um, an increasing number of Christians. I'm not saying the Radiohead fandom ought to be the normative model for the church. I'm just saying that um, the church can look and see how is it that people interact with something that is so deeply meaningful to them and so deeply beautiful in a way that is quite different than the um, attendance-based models that a lot of churches work yeah. with. And their, and their affinity is really, really strong. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes a kind of identity. Um, Radiohead fandom marks you out. And, you know, it's easy to parody or make fun of in some ways. But um, it marks you out as having a particular kind of orientation towards art, music, the world, and so on. I think it also gives the lie to this idea that the Internet is automatically making us more isolated and alone. I think it's mediating community very differently, but different doesn't mean absent. Yeah. And it brings up all these different questions of what are the boundaries of community? Um, who has authority in the community? Is it cultural or countercultural or a bit of both? It's fascinating to think about. There's a great line. It was a documentary about uh, 1970s skateboard culture and the rise of it in Venice Beach. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something like all the world saw was a bunch of co concrete sidewalks and swimming pools. And what these teenagers with skateboards saw was a canvas. In other words, they remade the geography of this urban space through their creativity. And I... I sort of think that's what church life is like these days. I know it's not going away. I'm not even entirely sure it's weakening. I think what's happening is that the landscape is being redrawn by the equivalent of a bunch of 15-year-olds with skateboards that are um, showing the broader institution new pathways. That's a beautiful thought. I think the only other thing I'd want to say is that um, the few times that religion comes up in Radiohead's music... In a way, it shows how real engagement with meaning and beauty, even if it takes the form of mocking religion, might actually end up being more profound than how it first appears. And what I mean by that, I'm thinking about the, um, the track Paranoid Android from OK Computer, which is one of their more famous ones. It's one of the few times where Tom York is talking, uses language of God and, um, it's in the middle of this slower section of the song and he just starts repeating God loves his children. God loves his children. And then a really sarcastic, like, yeah. And you might hear that as, Oh, this is Radiohead mocking religion. And maybe in terms of authorial intent, it is, but what happens immediately then is this kind of whirlwind of guitars that like, plunges the listener deep into this squall, into this sonic storm. And 
the reason I'm interested in that is it makes the track kind of a challenge to say, okay, if we're doing God talk, are we doing it at the level of just pure rhetoric? You know, God loves his children. God loves his children. Or are we really willing to like face the storm again, be dropped deep into all the mess and the chaos. And so I think what I love about that is art is that the track doesn't tell us that the track performs that the track puts us in a very bodily sonic way right into the mix of that. And if there's anything I want theologians to get out of Radiohead, it's that question of, well, beyond the words that we use, what are the deep embodied encounters with beauty and chaos and meaning that the church is in a position to help people experience? And if people can get that out of Radiohead or out of any art that they find meaningful, I think that that, that's a really compelling way forward for the church. Have you seen communities of faith who are doing that kind of work really well. Right now I'm researching this uh, online orthodox group called Death to the World. And Death to the World was started by a former heavy metal guitarist who uh, became a monk, uh, an Eastern Orthodox monk. But he uh, started these little punk rock DIY magazines. He started a zine where uh, he talks about um, orthodoxy and particularly the monks and the church martyrs as like the last true rebellion. And it was picked up again in uh, 1996 by a uh, priest out in California. So it's still going today. And there are things you can question or maybe even make fun of in terms of how they're drawing on all this really goth imagery from Eastern Orthodoxy. But I think one of the things that they're doing is that they're taking punk aesthetic seriously on its own terms and taking seriously um, what it means to say that the world as many people experience it is truly messed up and truly comprised of a lot of death dealing structures. And so what might look on the surface, like pandering, Oh, you're a punk rocker. Here's some Eastern Orthodoxy to answer your question. I, I, th- I think it's much more of a two-way dialogue where it's like, there's something about the punk aesthetic that is actually naming something pretty serious about modernity and about common sense as we experience it. And it's trying to host a dialogue between, in this case, ancient theological resources and this aesthetic in ways that I find really compelling. So that's what I'm writing on now. Yeah, that's interesting. As you were talking about kind of the punk sensibility, I'm like, oh, yeah, the people who know this best are also like counselors, you know, people who pre- who sit in grief all the time. Yes. Um, they kind of know, have the same, they hold the same kind of knowledge in their bodies. Yeah, I mean, any sort of experience of rupture, right, whether that's deep grief, a loss or something, one of the things it does is it kind of pulls the veneer back from day-to-day common sense, right? And you realize the world that a lot of us have to live in day-to-day to function is not actually engagement with, you know, the desert of the real. Uh, experiences of loss and rupture put us in the desert of the real. And then the real test is, is our testimony of the gospel up to that challenge. Well, Rob, thank you so much for the conversation today. This was great fun. Thanks so much, Sherry, for having me. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rands. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Ni Adu Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.